Anyways, hello, hello. Welcome to Rock Fellowship. We're glad you could join us this weekend. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know um, we've been blessed um, over, really over the course of a month with a series of lay leaders and Pastor Chris. And really, it's been kind of this time where we've been, I feel like, growing closer as a church community where many, where many people came and shared their testimony with us. We had Anne and Tamarsh and, and Brett and Pastor Chris shared. And Elizabeth shared a part of her testimony in her message as well. And um, I think I speak for both Pastor Chris, myself, Ed, and the church at large when, when I say that, you know, we may be doing this more often. It was such a big blessing. It was so awesome to hear from, my lay, from our lay leaders. So uh, for anyone not named Elizabeth, Brett, Anne, or Tamarsh, just want to keep you guys on your toes. If you get a text or a call from Ed or myself or Pastor Chris, you know what to expect moving forward. Um, anyways, this week I won't be sharing my testimony. I'm going to be doing something maybe kind of quite the opposite of sharing my testimony as we are starting a brand new series at Rock. And if you were last week, Pastor Chris slightly uh, previewed it. This series is titled Idols. Idols, and if you notice, uh, the S that finishes the word idols is in fact a dollar sign. And as you may be able to tell from this series, one of the big topics we'll be tackling in this series is money, a biblical understanding of what money should be for a faithful follower of Jesus. And because I know everyone's idea of a perfect Saturday afternoon is a 26-year-old telling them how to spend and manage their money, can really sense the excitement and the thrill from everyone sitting in these pews. I'm going to defer to God and open us up with the word of prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I want to pray before you today and welcome you in this place as we just sing, God. Lord, may we remember why we are here. May our hearts be open to you for worship, Lord. Soften my heart. Empty all of us in this room, myself included, Lord, of anything else that is not worship and praise of you, Lord. Fill us with your spirit, Father. May the words I say be yours alone, and may the words that are heard and internalized um, be, fall on open ears and soft hearts, Father. May you be attuned to the voice of heaven, Lord. May your will be done at rock as it is in heaven. I pray this in your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So when it comes to a series of, of money and finances and giving, I really kind of wanted to tackle and target who the three main audiences we had when we came up, uh, Pastor Chris and I were brainstorming for this series. The first is the most obvious group. If you're someone that has a career or you are in a position of leadership in your family, you manage and or make the money for your household, this series is going to be the most currently and obviously relevant for you. If you make money, you get a paycheck, you're kind of established in your career. That's pretty obvious. The second group is there's kind of this middle group where maybe you are not like a full-time worker. Maybe you're like an intern. Maybe you're a new grad. Maybe you just started. Maybe you're a student that has a part-time job. Maybe your only source of income is just you work a few hours at Bonchon during the week. If that's you, there is insane relevance for you here because I still remember um, the first time I ever gave to church my own money. And generally, if you grew up um, in church and if you remember, up until maybe four years ago, we would pass around an offering basket. And every time I'd go to church, my mom would slip me a dollar or two and say, hey, just, you know, just put this in. When it comes by, you don't know what to do. Just take that money out, put it in there. And I remember I was in college, and it was the first time. And if you were here a few years ago when we were still worshiping at Rivergate, I shared a, a small snippet. Um, after my freshman year of college, I came home for the summer, and because I wanted to be as financially independent as possible, um, I got a hook up through a friend, and I got a job as a server at an all-you-can-eat Korean barbecue restaurant. And when I say that was one of the most difficult jobs I've ever had in my life, um, I really do feel for the people that I served during that time, because if I was sitting at a Korean barbecue restaurant, 
And a scared, sweaty 18-year-old came and started placing raw meat down on my table, I think I would have lost my appetite. There was a few moments where I just, I wouldn't even say, like, hello. And I would just start placing food down. I was just a wreck. I was nervous. And I remember the first time I, I came in and said, hey, Yoon, we got your paycheck for you. And they handed me a little envelope, and I was so excited. I got in my car. I opened it, and I was like, whoa. Like, this is, you know, at that point in my time, like, the most amount of money. I think I made, like, $300 in two weeks. And I was like, I'm rich. I'm the richest man ever. And if you look, there's a piece of paper. On the left side is all the money you made. And on the right side, there's a small box. And it's um, other fairly large numbers, I would add, that are deducted from your paycheck. And I remember the first time I saw that, I was like, there are a lot of, like, things. Like, it's not just, like, taxes. It's like this and this and this. And I didn't recognize any of the descriptions of any of the people that were taking my money. And I remember, like, I told my mom, like, is this right? Like, this is, this is, I feel like a lot of them, they're really taking, like, you know, $35 from this paycheck. And the minute that happened, and the minute I internalized, like, how taxes work, like, my eyes were open. Like, all of a sudden, like, every time I drove over a pothole, I was like, ridiculous. You're going to take, <laughs> you're going to take $60 a month from my paycheck. You can't fix a pothole. Are you kidding me? What is wrong with this, this government? Everything is going, I, I, like, was filled with the spirit of our founding fathers. I've never even voted yet. How can I pay taxes without representation? What is going on right now? This doesn't make any sense. This, this is unconstitutional. And then on top of that, like, and I remember like, I was just so sweaty and tired, and I was like, wow, I can't believe they took this much money. And then my mom reminded me, I was like, hey, make sure that you tithe. And I was like, ah, but I feel like I already did, though. Like, I really feel like I already did. You know, God works through the leaders of our country, I think. I feel like he can use that money to fix the potholes on our streets. And I remember the first time, um, it was, you know, a small amount of money. I didn't have a checkbook, so um, I just asked my mom for some cash and um, I got one of those tithing envelopes, and I filled it out with my name, and I put it in. I remember this sense of, like, I was happy and kind of excited to do this, because, like, you know, I never get to touch these envelopes unless I'm drawing on the back of them. But I got it, and I put it in with, you know, my $30 for those two weeks. And there was a small sense of, like, it was a little bit hard to let go of that envelope, I'm going to be honest. But at the same time, there was a sense of, like, yeah, like, I've, I've done something. I've done the right thing. I feel like I've played a role in being obedient to my to my creator. And the reason I bring that up is anyone that's worked in a part-time job before knows that um, even if you don't make a crazy amount of money, there's something about giving your hard-earned money away, even at an early stage of your life, whether it is just a few bucks because you just have a part-time job or whether you're just an intern, if you can establish a healthy and biblical relationship with money at this point in your life, at this point in your earning career, it'll only make it easier and more likely that you do so later because that's just how percentages work. The last, the third and final group is the group that I think is the most likely to hear that, oh, we're doing a series on money, time to sleep or draw or go on my phone. And that's those of us that do not have a job, those of us that are in the youth, those of us that are young adults, those of us that are students. Maybe you don't even know what job you're going to have in the future. And the reason this series is relevant for you right here and right now is because I guarantee you, especially if you're in the youth, and even more so if you're in college and you're a student, you have at one point in your life been asked or have thought about what you're going to do or what you're going to be when you grow up. If you're in high school, it's a given that someone has asked that question to you and or you've spent some time on your own thinking about, okay, what am I going to be when I grow up? What am I going to major in? What job am I going to have? And one of the most important factors that you will consider in making that decision 
is how much money does that job make and or what kind of life do I want to live as an adult? And the way of putting that is what lifestyle do I want to have? And all of those, none of those are evil or terrible questions to ask. They're highly relevant. But really, all of those questions tie into what is your relationship with money going to be? And if you can establish that now, before you have that career, before you start making money, while you're still financially dependent on your parents or someone else, it'll only help you in the long run, which is why if you're in the youth or a college student, junior high, even if you're in the Rock Kids, this series is still relevant for you right here, right now, as you pray over, struggle, wrestle with what you're going to be in the future. It will have a tie into your relationship and perspective with money. With that being said, what is this series actually going to be about? And you may have guessed based on the title, while this series will touch on money, I specifically titled the series something that is relatively at its core, unrelated to money, the title of the series is Idols. Now, when I mentioned the word idols, and you grew up in church, and I asked you to think of a Bible passage or a story that deals with idolatry or idols, I imagine for at least half, maybe even most of the people in this room, you think of probably the most infamous story of idolatry in the Old Testament, found in the book of Exodus. It's most famously known as the Golden Calf Incident. And it's a story, the story of the golden calf takes place just as the Israelites are wandering from the wilderness. They just left slavery in Egypt. They're no longer slaves. And they get to the base of Mount Sinai. And there, their leader, Moses, goes up on the mountain. And doing so, he meets God and he receives the Ten Commandments, the cornerstone of the law of the Israelites. And as he's doing so, everyone else is at the foot of the mountain. And the interim leader is Moses' brother, Aaron. And the Israelites start to get a little bit antsy as Moses is gone. And they're like, listen, Aaron. Who knows what happened to Moses? It's been so long. Why don't you make a god for us? And Aaron says, all right, everyone with earrings, give me your earrings. Melt it down. I don't know how to work with metal, but he ting, 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 and made a golden calf. He said, this is your new god. And they worship God. And they worship this, this golden idol, this golden calf. Um, and then when Moses comes down, they all get in trouble afterwards. Now, the significance of idolatry and its connection to this series about money is that an idol, or especially in this story, this golden image of a cow, in and of itself is nothing more than an object. And what I mean by that is the sculpture, a sculpture of a cow made out of gold isn't inherently good or evil. It's just a hunk of gold made to resemble an animal. That being said, what makes this hunk of gold an idol is how that hunk of gold was perceived by the Israelites, what it meant to the Israelites, what it meant to the Israelites and the significance that was placed upon this thing, this object that had no will of its own. For the Israelites, it became their God, their leader, their sense of comfort. They say, this is the God that will go before us, and it had entirely replaced their idea of the Savior that had just rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And in that same light, I would argue, the same is true for money. When you read through scripture, you'll find that money is not a topic that the Bible shies away from. It's mentioned well over 2,000 times. And I don't know how accurate this part is, but I read that um, if you combine all the mentions of faith and prayer, it only adds up to about 500 mentions in the Bible. So that being said, the Bible definitely does not shy away from talking about, mentioning, teaching on money. In fact, 40% of Jesus' parables involved money and finances. But with that being said, if you read through all the different instances and interactions and teachings of money in the Bible, um, you may actually get a little bit confused because the teachings are fairly nuanced. 
And it can lead you to wonder, what exactly does the Bible say my relationship with money should be? For instance, on one hand, you have verses like James chapter 2, verse 5, which says, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? You read a verse like that, and actually the, the context of this verse is talking about don't favor people just because they dress nicely and welcome them. You want to not have favoritism and sit with and welcome the people that are poor and don't look as rich. So you read this passage, and you may think, okay, poor good, implication, rich, not so good. And then you're reminded of essentially the entire second half of the book of Genesis, where you have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all of these people who are insanely wealthy and blessed by God in their wealth. They have Jacob and Joseph who kind of go through ups and downs, and Joseph really kind of experienced these, the entire spectrum of like socioeconomic status from like slave to prisoner to prime minister. But again, the idea is that God put him in those places, and God blessed Abraham and Isaac with their wealth. Throw in Job, David, and Solomon, and you have more people who were essentially faithful to God, but their wealth was given to them by God. And then you go to the New Testament, where you have people like John the Baptist, who Jesus praises as there is no one greater that has been born from a human being than John the Baptist. And John the Baptist's defining characteristics are he wears weird clothes and he eats weird food, which is essentially code for this man does not have money. This is not a wealthy man that is preaching the gospel. He's eating honey and locusts. He has no food budget. And this is the man that Jesus says, there is no one greater. And this is the man that prepares the walkway, the runway for Jesus Christ himself. But also in the New Testament, you have Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, and Joseph of Arimathea, who are wealthy, interact with Jesus, and are never chastised for their wealth. Sure, Zacchaeus is asked to give money back to the poor, but what Jesus is asking him to do is, listen, you've cheated a lot of people out of money, make them whole. But that's different from, woe is you, for you are rich. And there's a distinction, there's a distinction to be made there. And then you have Jesus himself. And I think sometimes we may not think about it quite this way, but Jesus, when he chose to come on earth and be born and live as a human being, could have chosen to be born into any social economic standing, any family, yet he chooses to be born, as a, born and live as a poor person. And I think there's an implication to be made here that Jesus' ministry probably had access to a fair amount of money. Otherwise, why would you need someone on your team that's a treasurer that handles the finances, yet Jesus himself opts to live off of basically nothing, just the generosity of others. Actually, the only things he really owned were the clothes on his back, and even that was taken from him at the very end of his life. So you see this juxtaposition, and you see this kind of spectrum and you see that the Bible's perspective on money isn't as simple as less is good, more is bad, or as people in the Bible would have seen it, more is good and less is bad. It's much more nuanced. And there are verses such as 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9 through 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So the Bible definitely teaches about the potential dangers of money, but also in Deuteronomy, it says, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, implying that it is very possible in situations where God is the person that gives you wealth, that your wealth is from God and for God. And when you read these scriptures, you're prone to think, okay, so then what exactly is the Bible's view of a healthy relationship with money? Because clearly there are people in the Bible that are faithful and have a lot of money. 
There are people in the Bible that are faithful. Jesus himself, God himself, but he chooses to come and he has no money. But the Bible also teaches wealth is very dangerous. But it also says God gives you wealth. And so when you look at these verses, you're prone to think, well, what exactly then am I supposed to think about money? How, what is the biblical perspective on this? And I want to read a passage um, that I think kind of summarizes both sides of how the Bible views this. It's found in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 7 through 9, is uh, the sayings of a man named Arger. And it says, two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehoods and lies far from me, and give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. The reason he asked for that is, otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. And in this prayer, you see that this man, this wise and humble man named Arger, kind of concisely summarizes wealth has dangers on its extremes, but I would argue that when you look at the Bible as a whole, the conclusion that can be drawn from the Bible's view of money and what it calls our relationship to money to look like is that money in and of itself is neither really good nor evil, it's just a thing. What makes it different from something like a golden calf or an object of worship is that it inherently has a level of usefulness. And so for the purpose of this series, I would summarize the biblical perspective of money as money is simply a tool that as followers of Jesus are to, is to be used for the kingdom of heaven. The money is simply a tool that is to be used for the kingdom of heaven. And that in the same way that a hammer or a screwdriver is not good or evil in and of itself, it, it, it depends entirely upon the person that is using it because money is nothing more than a tool. And when it comes to a tool, the goodness or evilness, the harm and the destruction or the good that a tool can do is based entirely upon the person that is holding and using that tool. Which is why when you read scriptures, one of the most frequent actions that God asked his people to do with money is consistently give money away. And when you read scripture, there are essentially two areas that God says, I want you to give to these two places. The first is give to the church. Second is give to the poor. Or to use in biblical terms, give to the Levites and to the temple and give to the poor, the widows, the orphans, the less fortunate than you guys. And the reason God makes this claim, and the reason I think this is such an interesting parallel, is that when you read scripture and you see that God consistently says, give to the poor and give to the church, those two commands parallel perfectly what Jesus himself says are the two greatest commands. Love God, love others. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And as an extension of you living that out faithfully, give to God, give to the church. Give to worship God and give to, the, give to your neighbors. But what is the purpose of God asking us to give our money to the church and to the poor on a consistent basis? And if you think about it, maybe you've asked yourself the question, I'm a, I'm a faithful follower of God, I want to follow God, obey God, and I know he tells me to give to the church and give to the poor. You may have asked yourself the question, well, why? Obviously, I want to obey God, and I, I think it's a good thing, but why does God ask us to give to those places? And I think the simple answer that we're prone to come up with is, well, they need it, right? Obviously, on a practical level, the church needs money for its ministries, pays for the salary of pastors and anything else the church wants to do. Meeting in a building costs money. It's the, there's a practical reason for it. And the poor and the less fortunate need money to live and to get by, which is a practical reason to give, 
but I would argue it's not nearly as compelling as the reason Jesus has for you and for me as to why giving our money away is such an important exercise for us in understanding our relationship with money. And to show this, I want to turn to Mark chapter 12, verse 41 through 44. A similar passage can also be found in Luke. But this is Jesus observing something take pla- takes place in the realm of money and church finances. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple and watched as crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she has to live on. Here Jesus makes an observation of this huge, not only wealth, but contribution disparity. And so to put yourself in the shoes of what Jesus is looking at right now, today at the end of worship, at the announcements, we'll have a QR code and a call to give offering. And the most you will have to do in that instance is lift your phone up about six inches and take a picture of the QR code if you have not already done so already. But in those days, if you wanted to give to church, it was a much more arduous and kind of big, flauntuous kind of procedure where you had to transport pounds of coins to church to drop it into the treasury. And a lot of times what happened was people would use that as an opportunity to kind of flaunt and posture and flex of, look how much money I'm pouring in. Because to be honest, it was easy for it to become like this huge grand operation where you're dumping in coins and it makes noise and people are looking like, oh my goodness, look how much noise that person made when he he dropped in their offering. And so it was kind of a spectacle to see and it was really easy for it to become about you. But as Jesus is observing this, he notices a widow putting in two small copper coins. The, the Greek word is two, lepta. And to put some perspective into what that means. Um, if you've heard about money used in the Bible before, you may have heard of the term denarius. A denarius was uh, a fair day's wage. So if you worked one full day, a fair wage was one denarius. One lepta was one 128th of a denarius. So two of those is 100, is one 64th of that, which may not mean anything to you, but This is not the most accurate calculation, but just to put a real-life U.S. number on it, right? If you worked um, eight hours a day and you got paid 15 bucks an hour, at the end, you make $120. Let's say $120 is a denarius, represents a full day's wage. One sixty-fourth of that is just under two bucks. She put about $1.88 in. Not the most accurate calculation element, but just to put some terms like, what exactly did she put in? Well, two coins doesn't mean anything to us but it's a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of one day's wage. And she puts it in, and I imagine nobody turned to look at her. Jesus might have been the only person that saw this interaction happen. She put in two small coins, less than $2, and Jesus sees this and is so impressed, he pauses and calls his disciples over to create a teaching moment. He's so impressed and moved by this poor widow's offering that he says, this contribution right here, what this widow has just done, This is what you need to do. She made the greatest contribution out of anyone here. Which is a nice saying, but if you think about it, what is Jesus actually trying to say with this statement? Oh, it's nice. And he he mentions that she gave everything that she had. But Jesus, $2. I mean, you can only stretch $2 so far as far as practical ministry and usefulness. What do you mean? Surely, right, these people that are dropping in literal 
boatloads of, of coins. Like, these guys are making bigger contributions. So obviously, Jesus is not talking about the monetary value of our, con- of our contribution because we all know that when it comes to just numbers and budget and finances, $2 is less than three, four, five, six hundred dollars $600. But in this passage, you find what God truly values about us giving our money away. Because on paper, the widow's contribution wasn't very much money at all. Again, from a practical, budget, financial, what can my money do for someone else? $2 cannot do more than $500 can. Yet, what is it that Jesus sees in this woman's offering and her contribution that makes him stop, bring his disciples to him and say, this is the blueprint for giving. This is true giving in a biblical sense. Because as far as what money can do for someone else, the answer for the widow's offering is not very much. So what is it that Jesus valued about what this woman had offered? And this is an important question to ask because sometimes I think we become so overly concerned with what we're giving to that it can sometimes prevent us from giving it all. So when you look at this widow and you say, oh, you gave $2, you might have asked yourself the question, if you're the widow, what's the point? What's the, what $2 isn't going to do much as far as charitable works? It's not going to build a soup kitchen. It's not going to, you know, finance anything really big. Just keep it for yourself. It's not worth, right? You need that money more than the church needs it, which is a fair, fair point to make. You may look at the church finances. You know, the church is doing it. They, they don't need this money. I need this money. Listen, I'm like barely scraping by. Listen, widow, don't give it to the church. You keep it for yourself because, to be honest, it's not going to do much which may be harsh to say, but it's a very practical way of looking at it. And I think sometimes when we look at giving, giving our money towards a cause or to something else, we become overly obsessed with, well, what is my money going to do? Which is a fair question to ask, and I'm not saying there's a minimum level of due diligence required when you give money away. I think there's a reason why it's important for the church to be transparent in its finances, and you should know that whatever you're giving to, that you're not just getting scammed of. But I think it's true that for so many of us, we become hung up on understanding exactly what we're giving to, being able to sympathize with the cause, knowing exactly how and where the money will be used for, and I need to feel a sense of urgency, like you need the money now, otherwise, I don't know if I'm going to give. And if we don't have all these boxes ticked, we say, okay, then I'm good, I'm not gonna give, I don't think you guys actually really need my money. And if we're being honest at times, we use these metrics, we use these checkpoints, this rubric of sorts, um, almost as an excuse to not give. And at times, that can become a barrier for generosity, an obsession of I need to know exactly how and where and when this money will be used. Otherwise, if I don't believe in the cause, if I don't think this money will be useful, I'm not going to give. And I'm not saying there's some truth and some necessary like due diligence that you need to do when you give, but if you look at what... Jesus praises the poor widow for, none of those metrics make sense. The widow was given, and in the background, people are dumping just hundreds, exponentially more than she could ever give. So clearly, her contribution doesn't mean much in the grand scheme of things to the church. It's very possible that no priest or Levite even saw her do this. And she doesn't ask, well, like, can I know that this money is going to go for a good cause? She doesn't know any of that. All she knows is she's giving money to God, and this is all she has. And Jesus sees that and says, that's the blueprint for giving. 
Because this passage of the widow's offering highlights an important biblical truth, which is, when you read through Scripture, you see that God and Jesus isn't nearly as concerned with what your money does for others. He's much more concerned with what giving does for you. That there is an intrinsic benefit in simply giving your money away to someone or something else Apart from what benefit your money can practically do for someone or something else, this benefit in you as the giver in and of itself. Paul reiterates this in the book of Acts. For it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because as we stated earlier, money is just a tool from a biblical perspective. And in the widow's case, this is what she used that tool for. And, and as she looked at her life, right, she's a poor widow, which is essentially the bottom of the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder at that time. And she gives everything she has, which is essentially nothing to God. What she's doing here and what God sees her do is she's using this tool of money on her behalf and saying, God, this is my sacrifice to you. I am choosing that as I look forward into this future, right, my finances are uncertain. My livelihood is uncertain. And I'm choosing to not trust in myself, not trust in these two coins, but to trust in you. This is the tool. This is the exercise that I'm giving. This is an expression of my faith in and of itself. Take this, God, because you are my provider and you are my sustenance. And God's critique of those that gave much were the people that were in the background dumping in all these coins. He says they gave out of their surplus. They gave out of the many that they had, but she had given all that she had. And sometimes I think that that we forget that Jesus doesn't actually need our money. And what I mean by that is this. I think a lot of times, I mean, it sounds obvious, but I think a lot of times in the way we give, we convince ourselves um, that he does. And what I mean by that is, I imagine the people that were in the back, that were dumping money, and that gave huge, large amounts of money, told themselves, yeah, I imagine that they weren't evil people. I like to think that they were just normal, faithful church givers that were giving the regular percentage they were supposed to. But imagine when they gave, when they gave that money, the feeling that they had was, yeah, this money will go towards doing something good, right? I'm giving a lot of money. This money will go towards doing something, and that's the value in me giving this money. The value in what I'm doing right now is what this money will do for somebody else. Yet Jesus looks at this picture and says, no, no, no. The value in giving as a Christian, as a follower of God, is not in what your money will do for somebody else. That is legitimate, and that's necessary, and there's truth there, but the true value of giving your money away is not found in what that object will then benefit, how that object will benefit somebody else. The true value is when you give money away in true biblical fashion with a healthy biblical perspective towards money, that changes you. That changes your heart. Jesus teaches that where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And the title of this series is idols. And the definition of idol is essentially the thing that you value the most in your life. Ideally, that would be Jesus. But anyone else, anything else that occupies that priority in your life, priority number one, the center of my life, anything else that is more important than God immediately becomes an idol. And so the question is, what is the most important aspect of your life? And how does giving tap into that? Because giving is a defense mechanism that God provides us to prevent money from becoming that idol. 
When we give money away, the idea is and you, when you give it away and you have a looser grip on money, you are exercising, you are acting in faith that this is not the most important thing in my life. This is not more important than my relationship with God. But it's difficult for giving to accomplish the task of changing your heart if what we give is of no value to us. It's difficult for giving, which main task is to change the heart of the giver. It's difficult for giving to do that if what you are giving is of little to no value to you at all. In other words, giving money to God and to our neighbor is supposed to change our hearts and be a reflection of our heart standing with God. But it fails to accomplish its purpose when the giving is done is of no consequence to us. Hence, Jesus' praise for the widow where when she, gave, when she gave those two small copper po- coins, her life was changed. She no longer could live the same way. Now she was living completely in faith, whereas the people in the background, his critique of them was, they gave a lot, sure, but their hearts aren't changed. That didn't mean anything to them. It meant everything to this widow, and that's what true giving is supposed to do. I think of the small dollar or two that my mom would give me every Sabbath when I would come to church and I would slip in, that wasn't really biblical giving in the sense that, A, that meant nothing to me. It wasn't my money. But B, on top of that, it was just a thing. It, wasn't, it didn't really affect my parents' life, at least not the $2 they gave to me. I'm sure they tithed and, and gave faithfully. But as far as what those $2 that she gave to me was, it was much there's nothing more than just a social faux pas if I don't put that in the offering basket. But it didn't actually represent what true biblical giving looks like because when you look at Jesus' praise of the widow, it's this should change your life in some way, shape, or form. Moving forward um, to the next few parts of the series, as we look ahead to what this series will hold, um, it's, it's, it would be an understatement to say that this is potentially going to be an uncomfortable sermon series for a lot of us. Um, next week, if you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, cool, 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 I, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, but to be honest, um, I don't think this series is for me because, newsflash, I do give consistently. And I, I tithe regularly, so, um, you know, I feel like this series is much more for people that, like, maybe don't give at all and you're new to the church. Um, but I've been in church for a while. I've given 10%. I mean, pre-tax, it doesn't really matter. I'm not really a details kind of person, but I give 10% of my money to the church, and I've been doing it for a consistent amount of time, so I think this is all good. I think you should preach this, uh, but I think it's more for other people. If that is your thought right now, I, I personally will invite you to next week, which I think may be the most uncomfortable part of this series. This is a toss-up between part two of this series and part four, which is the final part of this series. And we'll talk about the biblical view of giving and the, struct- the scriptural context of tithing. Um, and it's, it'll either be part two or part four, depending on who you are, that'll be the most uncomfortable part of this series. Coincidentally, Pastor Chris is preaching part three. Don't know how that happened. But, <laughs> but the reason I ask this question, and, and to kind of set us up for the rest of this of this series, which again is about idols and money, but really about this idea of giving money, there's a question I want to ask you as we prepare for the rest of the series and close out this, this message. And this question will bridge this story of the widow's offering with the scripture and verses we'll talk about next week. And the question I want to ask you is this. It's a personal question, 
but I would like you to answer this as specifically as possible. How much could you give before it started to affect the way you lived? Maybe a better way of saying this. How much could you give before you had to change your lifestyle because of it? How much could you give before you had to change your lifestyle because you were giving? In other words, at what point would giving, giving to God and giving to those in need, at what point would it actually have the intended effect on your life that God wants it to have? At what point would giving change your life? Because the critique that God has of the people in the background of this widow's widow story, these guys are background characters now, is their giving did not change their life. It didn't really affect them. And it's not to say that what they did was wrong or that it was, it was bad. They just missed the point of what giving is supposed to be about. And that true biblical giving gives the biggest benefit to the giver. It will change your life and it will change your heart as it did for the widow. But I think I speak for a lot of people in this room, respectfully, that giving for us is just a formality. It's just something you're supposed to do. But I would argue God's intentions for your life when it comes to your money and your generosity is, I want to change your life. I want the giving you, I want the giving you do to be more than just a reoccurring, I, just, I want it to be more than just a tax on your life. I want the giving you give to allow me to enter into your heart and change how you fundamentally view me and view your money so that it can no longer be an idol in your life. This is an important question to ask, and I really hope that you take some time this week, whether you're a parent or you're someone that just works part-time, ask yourself this question. It's, it's the most obviously relevant for those that have a career and maybe you manage or make the money for not just yourself but for your family, but also if you're someone that's just working part-time, you're an intern, you're a student, you just, um, you're not completely financially independent but you make some money, it's still a great question to ask. How much of the money that you earn how much of the money that you work for are you willing to give before it would actually even start to affect or change your life? How much before you would start having to make sacrifices for what you give? And I think that's a deeply uncomfortable question to ask, but a very necessary one to give because it's so easy for us in this room, and I, I think I speak for a lot of people in this room when I give the benefit of the doubt, that there are probably very many people in this room that give faithfully and have been giving faithfully, but at a certain point, the giving that we give has become really, if we're being honest, it's not that different from the tax that gets taken out of our paycheck. It's just, it's just another bill in our lives. And I'm not saying that's wrong or bad or that you're immoral for viewing it that way, but really what I think the true purpose of giving and God's plan for your life is, how can I change your life through what you are giving. And again, the question to ask yourself this week is, how much money could I give before I had to start changing my life? How much would I have to give before the giving started to change me? We'll pick up here with your answer to that question in part two of our series, Idols. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you that you're a God of love and a God that when you challenge us, you challenge us in our benefit, Father, 
Lord, I know that when it comes to money and finances and especially the giving away of our hard-earned money, Lord, it can be a sensitive and uncomfortable topic, Father. But I pray for any single person in this room that feels uncomfortable right now, Lord, that they take that, they take that uncomfortability, that kind of squeamishness as a sign that you are working on their hearts, Father. I ask that throughout this, the duration of this series, Lord, this can be a consistent trend that we may feel a little bit uncomfortable, that we may feel open um, to the movings of the Holy Spirit, Lord. I ask that this be a series that is transformative for us as a church as we view money the way you wanted us to view money, as we view giving the way you wanted us to view giving, which we believe in faith is what is best for us. Father, we thank you that you're a God of love and patience that will walk through us throughout the duration of this series. Give us the strength, give us the courage to answer these questions for ourselves as we reflect on who you are in our lives. I pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen.